You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 271, Advancing on Detroit. In the fall of 1780, most forces on both sides of the struggle were settling into winter quarters. The Americans were preparing for another winter in Morristown, New Jersey. The French were still in Newport, Rhode Island, not having gone anywhere since their arrival in America. The Loyalists, who I discussed last time in their raids on New York, had returned back to Canada for the winter. The British Southern Army under Cornwallis had pulled out of North Carolina to take a defensive posture in South Carolina. One man, however, opted to take on an additional action that fall. Colonel Augustin Moton de la Balme was determined to take Detroit. While there were a handful of French officers who received commissions as generals in the Continental Army, there were also dozens of other French officers who traveled to America to accept lesser commissions. Augustin Moton de la Balme was one of these men. Le Balme was born in France to a family that could trace its ancestry back to nobility. But somewhere along the way, one of his ancestors had been unfortunate enough not to be born first. So the family title passed to an older brother. So Moulton did not have any title of nobility. In his youth, he was simply known as Augustin Moulton. His father worked as a tanner, a respectable profession, but absolutely not nobility. Even so, his family background would allow him to get a commission as an officer in the French army. As such, Moton sought a military career beginning in 1757, when the Seven Years' War began. One of Moton's first introductions to war was the Battle of Minden, a major land battle where the British and Prussians defeated the French. It was the same battle where Lafayette's father was killed and where British General Sackville, later known as Lord Germain, ended his military career by a failure to follow orders. Sackville's failure allowed much of the French army, including the 21-year-old Lieutenant Moton, to escape capture or death. Moton later joined the Gendarmerie, which was a military company responsible for law enforcement among civilians. When the French army seized a town, the Gendarmerie would maintain law and order until a civilian force could be set up. By the end of the Seven Years' War, Moton had risen to the rank of captain in the cavalry and also served as a quartermaster. A few years later, he received another promotion to major. In 1773, as part of the French army's efforts to cut costs, it began to reduce the size of its army. Moton, by this time in his mid-30s, accepted a retirement offer. 
he spent some time writing two different books on horsemanship and cavalry tactics. It was also around this time that he added De La Balm to his name. Presumably, La Balm was his hometown. It's a small village in eastern France between Lyon and Geneva, Switzerland. When Silas Dean came to Paris after the revolution began, Le Balm was one of the first French officers to meet with him about the possibility of a commission in the new Continental Army. Dean wrote Le Balm a letter of recommendation in 1776, but Le Balm could not find a way to leave France and make his way to America. After Benjamin Franklin arrived in late 1776, Le Balm also received a letter of introduction from him recommending Le Balm to Congress as a capable cavalry officer who might be helpful in establishing the Continental Cavalry. In February of 1777, Le Balm, pretending to be a doctor, managed to secure passage on a ship leaving Bordeaux for America, along with two other French officers. He made his way to Philadelphia, where in May, the Continental Congress commissioned him a lieutenant colonel of cavalry in the Continental Army. Le Balm remained in Philadelphia, lobbying members of Congress and trying to promote himself. By July, he received a promotion to full colonel and the title of Inspector General of Cavalry. It's not clear if Le Balm ever really took up his position with the Army, or if he participated in any way in the Philadelphia campaign, where General Howe's British Army pushed up from Maryland into Philadelphia. After the Battle of Brandywine in September, which was part of that campaign, Congress granted another officer, Casimir Pulaski, command of the Continental Cavalry based on his performance at the Battle of Brandywine. Upset at being passed over, Le Balm submitted his resignation to Congress. Over the next year, the Continental Army was trying to survive at Valley Forge, while Congress was focused on what became known as the Conway Cabal, that is, whether to replace General Washington with the hero of Saratoga, Horatio Gates. After Gates became the new head of the Board of War, Le Balm approached Gates with a proposal to invade Canada. Now, Gates liked the idea, but ultimately gave command of the project to General Lafayette. The plan later fell apart because Congress did not have the men or resources to launch such an invasion. Le Balm, despite having submitted a resignation in the fall of 1777, was still a Continental officer because Congress hadn't accepted the resignation. But in February of 1778, Congress did accept the resignation that Le Balm had submitted, saying it had, quote, no further occasion for his services. Losing his military commission did not seem to deter Labaume from his attempts to make a name for himself in America. He received approval from General Gates to take part in operations around Albany, New York. After France signed a treaty of alliance with America, Labaume was convinced that he could rally the French Canadians to the American cause. He tried his luck at writing and issuing several leaflets written in French, German, and English calling for volunteers among the French Quebecois. By 1779, Le Balm was in Boston. At this point, his new goal was to establish contact with the Indians in what is today Maine and enlist their support of the cause based on their prior alliances with the King of France before the French and Indian War. He moved to Machias 
and seemed to be making some progress with the local tribes. But when the British launched the Penobscot expedition in July, things fell apart. Labom tried to bring a force of Indian warriors to Penobscot. He ended up getting in a skirmish with the British, or possibly with Loyalist forces, and was defeated. Labom was apparently captured in this skirmish. It's not clear if he later escaped or was exchanged. So, by the spring of 1780, Le was frustrated that he was unable to accomplish anything after three years in America. He wrote to General Washington asking for a certificate of service, but Washington refused, saying he didn't have any record of Le actually serving in his position as Inspector General of Cavalry. Le did manage to get back his letters of recommendation from Congress, but really didn't have much else going for him at this point. Even so, he could not give up on his efforts to rouse the French Canadians to overthrow the British in Canada. By June of 1780, he was in Pittsburgh trying to recruit volunteers for an effort to take Canada via the western frontier. Lebon realized that he could not recruit an army large enough to conquer Canada, but he believed that the French Canadians would be willing to rise up if a French leader such as himself could make a credible attempt to organize an overthrow. Lebom spent much of the summer trying to recruit a small cadre of men who would serve as the core of such a force. In their initial goal, they would take the frontier town of Detroit. Now, the Americans had made several attempts to take Detroit, but each time they were turned back, mostly due to the efforts of hostile Indian tribes who were still allied with Britain and mostly not wanting outsiders marching through their territory. Lebom restarted his efforts along the frontier to recruit a cadre of French-speaking soldiers. His recruitment started in places like Vincennes, Cahokia, and Kaskaskia. You may recall from previous episodes, these were towns primarily inhabited by French-speaking trappers and traders. The region had been under contention, but by 1780 was solidly under Virginia's control, mostly thanks to the leadership of George Rogers Clark and his men. It does not appear that Labom attempted to recruit Clark or his men as part of this effort. The French officer saw the frontiersmen as undisciplined. He also recognized that the Indians between Vincennes and Detroit were already pretty hostile to the Americans, so bringing them into the campaign would probably only increase the chances that they would all be massacred by local tribes. Instead, Labom focused on raising support among the French-speaking population. Since the Virginians had secured the region, the French locals were not particularly happy with American rule. Many of the Americans had stolen their property and broke into their houses. Soldiers forced citizens to accept worthless continental dollars in exchange for their goods. Many French locals also ended up losing land to Virginians and ended up just moving across the Mississippi into Spanish territory. Labom's recruiting efforts tried to benefit from these hard feelings against the Virginians. He at least implied that his efforts would eventually restore French control of the region. Although Labom had corresponded with French minister Luzerne in Philadelphia, there's no evidence that France had any expectations of reasserting any French control of the region. Even so, many locals were willing to take the chance. As part of his efforts, Le Bon partnered 
with Godfroy de Lincta, a local trader who was well-connected with several local tribes, spoke several tribal languages, and maintained a long-held grudge against British rule. Linktot did hold a commission from Virginia, but like Lebaum, seemed much more interested in returning French rule to the region rather than American rule. As I said, their words found a willing audience among many French-speaking locals. Richard Winston, a Virginia officer stationed at Kaskaskia, noted that the locals received Lebaum as, quote, the Hebrews would have received the Messiah. And many town leaders provided Lebaum with money and supplies for his proposed expedition to Detroit. Lebaum's vague promises of returning French authority and the more immediate promise of taking plunder from Kekionga and Detroit encouraged a few dozen locals to join the effort. Among his promises, Lebaum said he would capture Charles Bobien and take him to Fort Pitt for trial. Bobian was another French-speaking Canadian, but Bobian had definitively backed British rule. He was serving as the British agent for the Miami Indians in Ohio. Bobian had married into the tribe and had led several Indian raids against settlements along the Ohio River. Bobian had led a force of Miami which supported British Lieutenant Governor Henry Hamilton when Hamilton led a force from Detroit to attack Vincennes and other towns back in 1778. Linktot was convinced that if they could take out Bobian, the Miami would drop the British alliance and would support their efforts. In the fall of 1780, Le Baume and about 100 French-speaking volunteers left Kaskaskia, headed for British-controlled Kekionga, or what's modern-day Fort Wayne, Indiana. The expedition managed to travel nearly 300 miles without encountering much opposition. However, the expedition also appeared to be rather disorganized. This led to some divisions within the ranks. On October 20th, when the boats reached Fort Weontanon on the Wabash River in modern-day Indiana, about 40 of the men left the expedition and returned home. Now, the remaining force of about 60 men pushed on to Kekianga, arriving four days later. Labam expected to meet Linktot to meet up with him there, with a force of Indian allies. So the party paused there, waiting for Linktot's arrival. Fortunately for the expedition, they also had not encountered any hostile Miami Indians thus far. Kekianga was a sizable town for the Miami, but most of the warriors were not there. Speculation was that they were away on a hunting party. Kekianga was a key to control of the region, as it controlled an important portage between the Wabash and Maumee rivers. It was a key link to trade or to moving military forces between the St. Lawrence in Canada and the Mississippi River. Labam and his men spent nearly two weeks in Kekianga, waiting for their Indian reinforcements under Linktot. They found Bobian's house, but he and his family were long gone. So they looted the house, finding a large quantity of arms, blankets, and clothing, as well as a great many horses. And much of these supplies were probably meant to be gifts for the Miami or other local tribes friendly to the British cause. Several French-speaking locals at Kekianga also joined up with Labam's forces. With no sign of his allies or the enemy, Labam packed up his expedition in early November and prepared for the nearly 300-mile march to Detroit. 
After a day's march, the expedition camped at a new site a few miles northwest of Kakianga. And while the expedition hadn't encountered any hostile Miami, the local Miami were well aware of the expedition by this time. Many women and children had fled Kakianga when the expedition arrived, and word quickly spread among the local tribal leaders. Among those who heard of the invaders was a local Miami Indian named Little Turtle, or Mishikiniqua. In 1780, Little Turtle was in his late 20s. We don't know much about his early life, although it is believed that he was born and raised in an area near Kakianga. By some accounts, his father was a Miami chief and his mother was a Mahican. As a result, Little Turtle could not inherit his father's position as tribal chief. The Miami had a well-earned reputation of defending their lands pretty ferociously. They had fought for decades against the Iroquois, who were unable to dominate them. They were generally allied with the British, perhaps thanks to Balbien, but probably also because the British had not really made any attempts to impose on their territory. Now, there's no good record of the engagement, but Little Turtle assembled a force of local Miami to confront the expedition that had looted Kekianga as it was moving toward Detroit. Little Turtle led the attack. By some accounts, a man named Pekane, who was Bobian's brother-in-law, also participated in the attack. Pekane ran a local trading post that Labom's expedition might have attacked. The Miami war party led by Little Turtle caught up with Labom's men, leading to an intense battle. The Miami apparently got the upper hand. They killed at least 30 members of the expedition, including Labom. At the same time, the Miami suffered only about five deaths. For the French survivors, death might have been preferable. By some accounts, three of them were burned at the stake. Some were scalped while still alive. One had his hands and feet cut off before being killed with a tomahawk to the face. Only four prisoners were released, and they were sent back as a warning to the rest of the French against any attempts to move into Miami territory. About a week later, word of the battle reached Detroit. The military commander there, Captain Arendt Schuyler de la Paster, made note of the report. Quote, A detachment of Canadians from the Illinois and Post-Vincennes arrive at Kakianga about ten days ago, and enter the village, took the horses, destroyed the horned cattle, and plundered a store I allowed to be kept there for the convenience of the Indians. Soon after assembled, and attacked the Canadians led by a French colonel. According to the British account, the Le Balm expedition had initiated the attack. Quote, the Miami, resisting the fire of the enemy, had five of their party killed. Being, however, more resolute than savages are in general, they beat off the enemy, killed 30. With that, the Le Balm expedition and Le Balm's life came to an abrupt end. Following the battle the Miami returned Balbian's looted supplies to his house at Kakianga. The results of the unsuccessful expedition were not very significant. The small British outpost in Detroit was on rather high alert. The British rounded up some French in reaction to the incursion. Some local French settlers living in the area who were suspected of being potentially treasonous were sent to Montreal. Detroit's military commander, De Peister, ordered all French traders in the region, other than Bobian, 
to remove to Detroit so that they could not assist in any future expeditions. De Peister also sent British rangers to maintain control of the portage at Kekionga. For the French in Vincennes, the loss was a disaster. Many leading citizens had joined the expedition and never returned. Many of them also carried legal documents with them, planning to go to Philadelphia to assert legal claims against the Virginians who had taken their land. With the loss of these documents, many of the Virginia squatters were able to obtain title to the disputed land. The Miami even more solidly allied themselves with the British, offering sanctuary to anyone who suffered treatment by the French or the Americans to their south and west. The Miami also planned an attack on Vincennes, seeking approval from the British and also some assistance for the attack. The British approved the attack, but did not provide any assistance. So the Miami never followed through on their counterattack, but certainly their actions did deter any further French or American attempts to move into Indiana during the remainder of the war. Next week, we're going to return to the South, where the Swamp Fox, Colonel Francis Marion, continues to frustrate British efforts to rule South Carolina. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Gaylord, and to Robert Morris Circle supporter, 10 Crucial Days. Go to 10crucialdays.org to learn about the critical events that took place from Washington's Crossing through the Battle of Princeton. You can also arrange tours to retrace the Continental Army's advance into New Jersey. I also want to shout out thanks to David Smith and Michael Klatt for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. If you'd like to support this podcast, either through a continuing donation on Patreon or a one-time donation via PayPal or Venmo, there are links to both on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. I very much appreciate your support. And while we're on the discussion of support, I wanted to mention that we did hit a milestone on the podcast this week. I now have over 200 Patreon supporters. Now, Patreon removed the goal setting from all Patreon pages. So my promised goal that had been on my page saying that I would go full-time on the podcast if I can get 300 supporters no longer appears there. But I still stick by that promise. 
If you are willing to support me, I will happily do this full-time. Doing full-time means that I will go back to weekly releases, I will probably have more extra episodes, and I can probably continue this podcast for longer than I originally expected. So, if you can provide some support, I really do appreciate it. Again, you can find the American Revolution podcast on the Patreon website, or go to www.amrevpodcast.com for a direct link. I also have links at the bottom of each blog episode, which if you haven't checked out my blog, I really wish you would. That's at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Also, a reminder, I'm going to be presenting at History Camp Valley Forge on May 20th, 2023. There's going to be a bunch of speakers there on all things American Revolution. My presentation actually isn't on the American Revolution, but I think it's an interesting one for you. So if you can make it, you really should. If you don't have tickets yet, go to historycamp.org for more details. Again, it's going to be an all-day event in Valley Forge on May 20th. This week, we looked at a rather little-known French officer who came to America to fight for our freedom and ended up giving his life as part of that effort. For me, there are some key takeaways from this episode. One, there are many more French officers than we remember who fought in the service of the American cause. Two, there are a great many risk-takers throughout history who try to change history, but many of them fail and give their lives without any such change. And unfortunately for Colonel Lebaum, that was his case. Third, never underestimate the natives' ability to defend their territory. I mentioned Chief Little Turtle, who really got his start as a war chief when he defeated Lebaum. Little Turtle would go on to lead a number of raids against settlers in Kentucky in the later part of the war, and his stature would only grow after the war. He became one of the key figures in an Indian confederation that was trying to keep settlers east of the Ohio River. He's probably best remembered for leading a force that defeated American Army General Arthur Sinclair in 1791. This was the largest Indian victory over Americans in all of our history. Later, Little Turtle attempted to negotiate a peaceful settlement. He even met with Presidents George Washington and John Adams and corresponded with President Jefferson. If you want to read more about Little Turtle, my book recommendation this week is The Life and Times of Little Turtle, First Sagamore of the Wabash by Harvey Lewis Carter. The book's almost 40 years old. It's rather short, probably due to the lack of much of a written record about Little Turtle's life. But he is an interesting character and worth knowing about. The author, Harvey Carter, was a professor at Colorado College, and he passed away nearly 30 years ago. If you'd like to learn more about Little Turtle, but not a whole book's worth, my online recommendation is a pamphlet called Little Turtle... 1752-1812. It's a 20-page biography written by Rex Potteroff of the Fort Wayne Historical Society in 1960. And this one's available on archive.org. My question this week comes from Jesse Fernandez, who asks, It seems as though Andre was trying to highlight the fact that he entered enemy lines under a flag of truce, 
wouldn't it be worse or disrespectful to the flag of truce if he was engaging in espionage while under a flag of truce? Why did he think a flag of truce could justify his actions? Well, Jesse's asking a question in reference to events we discussed in episode 266, when Major John Andre was tried and convicted for espionage and hanged by the Continentals. The British had made an effort to protect Major Andre from execution by claiming that he had arrived under a flag of truce which had to be respected. Under the norms of the time, and even today, a soldier appearing under a flag of truce could not be shot or taken prisoner. This was really the only way enemies could talk. I have discussed instances in past episodes when leaders from both sides used a flag of truce to gain intelligence. Uh, Gaining intelligence whenever you could was not considered cowardly or unethical. But in those cases, the person received under the flag of truce remained in uniform and everyone around knew that they were the enemy. The intelligence gathering consisted of looking around while they were behind enemy lines. Such visits were not kept secret from the majority of officers and men on the other side. It was all done out in the open. In those cases, the side receiving the messenger under the flag of truce had the ability to control where they went and what they saw. If they did not want to receive the messenger, they could fire over the approaching party's head to let them know that they were not welcome and should turn around. Major Andre's case was different, since he was not really meeting with an enemy officer, but rather someone who had already agreed to join the British. Now that said, if he had remained in uniform and undisguised, the British would probably have a legitimate argument. Arnold was still technically a Continental officer at the time he received Andre. Even if Andre entered American lines at night, if he was under a flag of truce and remained in uniform, it probably wouldn't be appropriate to treat him as a spy. Of course, Major Andre really didn't want anybody on the American side to know that he was there because his presence might have outed Arnold as an American traitor before they were ready for that. In Andre's case, whether he had a flag with him or not when he left the ship at night, he certainly did cross into enemy lines and did change into civilian garb for espionage and that would be a violation of the norm for a flag of truce. Under a flag of truce, one does not hide one's presence from the enemy or do anything to obscure the fact that you are an enemy. You can't just sneak into enemy lines and then pull out a flag of truce when captured as some sort of -of get-out-of-jail-free card. Clearly, Andre was using subterfuge to disguise his true purpose. That's spying, and that gets you hanged even if you're an officer. The British did try to make an argument about Andre being under a flag of truce, but as I said, they were desperate to recover this valuable and well-liked officer and tried whatever they thought would get them back. British General Henry Clinton had originally drafted a letter to General Washington pleading to Washington's humanity, but the other British officers who reviewed it thought that this really set the wrong tone you couldn't go hat in hand to an enemy officer. If they could not get Andre back by demanding his return under the story that he was under a flag of truce, then they were not going to get him back. And of course they did not. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this time. 
I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.